0: This morning as we come to the text, we're talking about a comparison between where the philosophy of the world leaves and where a philosophy of heaven and Christ-likeness leads. And so it's very appropriate as as we begin to consider that situation as as an image and as, as a picture of what we face in our world, of the evil that we face in the world, the tragedy, but also the solutions that we face in Christ. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. We're actually going to pick up where we left off last week. We only got to two of the three paragraphs last week. And the paragraph that we're going to start with starts at verse 20. And it's really a transition in the book of Colossians. The entire text this morning is a transition between a lot of, of theology and a lot of teaching on what it means to be deeply rooted. What it means to be in Christ. And now the book, and and Paul in the book, begins to transition to, okay, how do you put that into practice? How are you radically changed because you're deeply rooted in Christ? And so this morning is that transition. And we're going to see that that Paul will bring us to an understanding of where the world's philosophy leads, but where God's solution can lead us. So we want to start at, at verse 20 and ask the question this morning as we read this passage, How do we begin to see radical change in our lives? How do we begin to open the door for the Holy Spirit to completely change us from the inside out? To give us hope. To give us a reason for life. To give us life itself. So we start at verse 20, and the first thing we're going to see in point number one in your notes is you have died to this world. You have died to the world. Stop trusting it to make you holy. You have died to the world. Stop trusting it to make you holy. Let's read verses 20-23. to If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and an asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And Paul here begins by saying, okay, let's consider what the world's philosophy will lead to. Let's consider its usefulness. Let's consider its value. And he's talking to believers at the Church of Colossae here, and he starts by saying, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, You died to the principles of the world. You died to the regulations, to the philosophy of the world. If with Christ you died, or since with Christ you died, then these things are true. Right from the start, we need to understand that these verses are written to people who have died with Christ and been raised with Christ. And so Paul is writing to people who have repented of sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we look at the promises, as we look at the principles, these are written specifically for believers in Jesus Christ. And if you are here this morning and you have not made that commitment, I, I challenge you this morning to look at, at the person of Christ, to look at the work of Christ, to look at the difference of the philosophies, and to say, I want to die to this world because I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And so we come here and Paul is saying, if you are a believer, if you have, with Christ you have died because he died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, took the payment for our sins, and put to death the power of the world, why do you still act and submit to its regulations? The word submit there is one that, that means to Fall under someone's decrees, to be enslaved by someone's decrees. And Paul here is challenging them. If you've been if you've been freed by the work of Jesus Christ, why are you so worried about what the world thinks? Why are you so enslaved by how the world says you, you become holy? How the world says you become spiritual, how the world says you become righteous. This was a huge issue for them, as you've heard me talk about and Pastor Andrew talk about, because they, the culture there was one where there were all these spirits and all these different things that were trying to grab at your attention that you had to do to keep a holy life. Remember, there were spirits of of rivers, there were spirits of intersections. And so you'd come to an intersection and you'd have to do the right incantation Otherwise, you know, the other donkey might hit you as you went by or something. And and so this was for safe passage. And so they lived in a fear that if they didn't do the right thing, they somehow lost their ability to be Christ-like. They lost their spirituality. Or worse than that, that the spirits would become hostile to them. And so Paul here is, is addressing just real practical life to them, why are you still bound by these silly superstitions any baseball fans here baseball players you know i'm a baseball fan and there's only one team but um <laughs> baseball players are superstitious right have you noticed that i remember this one relief pitcher he'd walk in and every time he'd walk in and he'd get to the the white line what would he do He'd jump over it because he felt like if he stepped on the white line, then it would mess up his rhythm. And, and oftentimes, teams when they win, the next day they do everything exactly the same. Which you know, village village one finally Friday night our first win village two, so next week we're doing everything exactly the same. No. no. <laughs> But it, it becomes this sequence that if I do these things I will get this result that I want. And I, I have to do exactly the same thing. And in baseball we laugh about it, and the commentators sort of chuckle at it. But that's a little bit of what they were facing spiritually. If we do these right things, say these right words, have the right amulet, then then we'll be protected. And Paul here is challenging, you're dead to the world. The world is dead. It offers no hope. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? And he is describing here a drastic split from the old life. When you become a believer, you become what? A new creation. The old is dead. The old is gone. We split from it. We've got to make a clean break. We sever those old links and bonds to the world and to sin. It's not that we we come at sin and say, you know what, I'm going to wean myself off sin. I'm going to sin a little bit less next week. Maybe it's it's a sin of stealing and and we say, okay, you know, I I steal a lot this week, but next week I'm going to steal a little less because I'm righteous. Does that make sense? No, because righteousness means what? You don't steal. You know, I'm going to yell at my wife a little bit less next week. Perhaps she would want a clean break, a new start. And so Paul is saying, you've died to the world. What are you able to do when you're dead? Nothing. Nothing. I guess you could say you could rot. And that, that really fits here. Because if if we stay in in our being dead to the world, if we live in that, we're just rotting. We're rotting flesh. There is nothing we can do when we're dead. And so Paul's using that as the image of the effectiveness of the world. There is no value. Second Corinthians 5.17 said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so we come to the next verse. Do not ha- you, why do you submit to its regulations? Voluntarily enslave yourselves to them. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And he's probably speaking of the Jewish dietary laws here again and, and the, the people that were Jews that were coming in and saying, you're not really saved unless you do these things. And they were building this case, like we talked about last week, of how you had to be spiritual. But those are man made restrictions. Those are man made precepts. Those do not have power to free us from sin. Two sisters, stories told of two sisters that um, in high school lived a pretty wild life. They were into drinking and partying and all kinds of things. And then they became believers, they accepted Christ. And they started reading God's Word and, and, and seeing verses like you're dead to this world. And they got this invitation to go to another party, and they knew what kind of party it was. They knew that there would be alcohol there. They knew there would be all kinds of opportunities to sin there. And so they went ahead and RSVP'd. But their RSVP said, we regret that we will not be able to attend because we are dead. We <laughs> would love to receive whoever received that. But what a picture of how serious we need to take our split from the world. To be dead to it. It is ineffective. These things like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch for them. Maybe it's different things for us. Maybe what—maybe it's the things the world tells us of, of what spiritual people should do. We should be tolerant. We should allow for every religion because its it's very narrow-minded to say that one religion leads to heaven. But it's not about being tolerant. It's about what God says is truth. Amen. And if another religion doesn't lead to heaven, we lie if we say it does, and we let people go to hell. But the world says that's not spiritual. Maybe the, the world will often say, okay, if you have a problem, yeah, the church isn't that relevant. God's Word isn't that relevant. Here, let's do some self-help books and let's get you in a group and let's solve this on our own. Because that's what mature people do and enlightened people do. And we're buying into a dead system. A dead system. And so Paul in verses 22 and 23 gives us an assessment. He critiques this this approach. He says, okay, let's see where this leads. And he has four different things of where this leads. The first in verse 22, talking about these, these dietary commands He says these referring to things that all perish as they are used. And so his first critique of what they're dealing with specifically is those rules, the man-made rules, the man-made ideas, those perish. They're used up. Jesus himself in Mark 7 said, since it enters not his heart, talking about food and whether food's clean or not, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled, thus he declares all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. And Jesus said, the the food stuff, it just goes in your system and out. It doesn't have any eternal value. It's what comes out of your heart that defines whether you're clean or not. And Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying, these things all perish as they are used. They're consumed. They're used up. The world's philosophy is, Perishes; It is not eternal. He goes on in verse 22 to say, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. And the according there goes back to verse 21. And, and, and actually verse 20, do you submit to the regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Sort of skip the parentheses there. According to human precepts and teachings. And his second critique is, these are simply human commands. And human commands don't hold a candle to God's commands. They're human precepts. They lack the power and wisdom of God. And so all these attempts to be holy and to look spiritual, unless it's actually what God says, it's just human fluff. Verse 23, he goes on to critique. And he says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. We know that some people, like we talked about last week, were saying you have to give things up. You have to humble yourselves and, and, and somehow torture your body to be spiritual. And Paul here sums all those up by saying those are deceptive. Those are deceptive. They have the appearance of being wise and spiritual, but not the reality of it. And so when we buy into the world's philosophy, we can do things that appear wise, appear religious, make us look like good people, but the only thing they do is make us think that we're spiritual when we are not. And the problem is, is when we do all these things just for the sake of doing them, when we think that we're spiritual and we're not, we fool ourselves and we prevent ourselves from seeing our faults and seeing our need for Christ. Martin Luther went down this path. Before he he taught salvation by faith alone, he went through the whole spiritual asceticism and and beating his body or, or denying his body things. And he came to the end of that and he said, you know what? Didn't work. Didn't draw me closer to God. I was just in more pain after that. And he began to study Scripture and realized it didn't work because that wasn't what God said to do. God said, believe in me and you will be saved. Trust me. And so we came to the the doctrine of salvation by faith alone, out of God's Word. So Paul says these have the appearance of wisdom, it's self-righteousness, it's man-made solutions, man-made wisdom. And finally, the last part of verse 23, which is, I think, a key verse that leads into the next passage. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul's final critique of these, these, the world's ways, the world's attempt to be righteous is it's worthless. It's worthless. It doesn't work. If you're looking for the world to help you stop sinning, the result will be more sin. More sin. You've heard the the phrase in America, we're going to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps. Have you ever actually tried that? You know, if you want to stand up right now and grab your feet and try to pick yourself up, It doesn't work. It's silly. And that's what Paul is saying is this idea of if we look to the world for solutions to our spiritual problems, to our sin problems. And I'm convinced that this is why we so often see the same sins coming back up. We struggle with anger and we try all these things and you know, I'm going to count to 10. I'm not saying you shouldn't count to 10, but if that's our solution, what's going to happen next time someone... Does something you don't like. You're gonna get angry again. You know, maybe eventually you're counting to a hundred or a thousand to try to calm yourself down, but you're, it's, it's an external worldly solution that doesn't get to the heart of the issue. And so we keep struggling with anger, with rage, with things like bitterness. If we just say, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like the person more. And if we don't get to the heart of it, we don't solve the sin. When we think of purity issues, there's all kinds of things that I recommend. Things like covenant eyes and things on your computer to, to hold you accountable. But again, if that's the only thing you ever do, then you haven't addressed the hard issue. And the sin will find a new way to come out. And it will find a new way to come back. And so when Paul here says they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, that should be something that we go, Whoa! Okay, wait a minute here. If, if, if all this that we can try is of no value, what is of value? What is of value? So we move to chapter three, verses one to four. And our first point was that you've died to the world. Stop trusting it to make you holy. It has no power. It has no ability. The world's solutions will not help you long term. But when we get to verses 1-4, through we get to the second point. You have been raised with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. Orient yourself to the life giver. Orient yourself to the life giver. Do you know what I mean by orient? We were up hiking a couple weekends ago with the college group and we get to a map and, and the weird thing about maps is if you don't get north right, you don't go to the right place. And that's orienting yourself. Figuring out which way is north, which way to look at the map. And so when we say orient yourself to the life giver, we're saying focus on who Christ is. Focus on the life He gives. Orient, direct your life to that. He is true north. Unless we get that down, you never know where that trail is going to lead. Fortunately, we did orient ourselves in time and got to the right place. Um... You've been raised with Christ. Orient yourself to the life giver. Let's start with reading verse 1. Chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So the first point that Paul makes, and we have three different points in this passage as well, of what it means to orient yourself to the life giver. The first point that Paul says is, We need to evaluate our desires and ambitions. Evaluate our desires and ambitions. Are they Christ's priorities? Are they Christ's priorities? We'll unpack that verse and see where we get that point. But like, just for a moment, in your notes there, you see at the bottom of the first page, I think it is, just ask you to write down four of your priorities in life. Four desires or ambitions. If you had to say, man, this is what I really want. Or, this is what I'm striving for. This is what I'm seeking for. Just write down the top four. We'll do it quickly, so if you only get two or three, that's fine too. But, um, just take a moment and do that. Okay, if you don't have four, that's okay. You can, you can keep doing that. But we're going to come back to that in, in, in a minute after we look at this verse and, and work through that. But verse one there, if then you have been raised with Christ. And, and, this corresponds to verse 20 of the last chapter, since you are, have, have died to the elemental spirits of the world in Christ. Now he says, since you've been raised with Christ. And, and the picture here is of, of his death and resurrection. Death, the payment of sin. His resurrection, the promise of new life. And Paul is saying, you already have been raised with Christ. This is, this is past tense, referring to the resurrection. You have been raised with Christ. You are a new creature. You have new life. Christ is the life giver. And that's the, 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 the principle that Paul wants to work out here. If, if you're dead to the world and Christ has given you new life, doesn't the, the life of the Christ, the, of the life giver have relevance? Doesn't it make sense to look at that? And so he says, if you're raised with Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, Raised spiritually, raised to a new hope with a promise of a physical resurrection. And he says, if that's true, and it is, seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. And the word for seek there is to set your desire on. It's not just a casual looking around. Like if I said there was a penny up here in, in, somewhere in the room, there wouldn't be a lot of seeking going on. Right? Now, if I said somewhere in the room was $10,000, would the level of seeking change? Yeah. And I would say, okay, you can't seek for it now. You have to wait till afterwards. Right. Everyone's feeling under their seat. There's not. So don't go there. But that's, that's the difference in this word. This is the idea of I'm, I'm seeking something intently. It has become my aim, my ambition. Another, another dictionary of a Greek dictionary said it means to devote serious effort to realize one's desire or objective. To quest after. To quest after. When you think of a quest, that's not just a casual thing, but that this is our heart's desire. Last week or the week before, I forget what it was, um, 7-Eleven had a deal, right? You got free Slurpees? All day from from like 11 to 7 or something like that. Anyone go to 7 Eleven that day? Anyone go to more than one? Okay, true confessions. My family went to seven. My kids thought it was the greatest thing in the world. We went to seven 7 Elevens. They're calling me and telling me this. That's seeking, (laughs) (laughs) questing, (laughs) desiring. A few days later, maybe this gets more people, a few days later, Starbucks had free drinks. Some of you are like, they did? (laughs) Anyone go to Starbucks? Anyone go to more than one Starbucks? Okay, a few of you, good. I'm not even going to say how many they went to. (laughs) But do you see what what the word seek means? And so when Paul says here, seek the things that are above, this is not a casual instruction. This is make this your aim, your ambition, quest after it, think of nothing else, don't be happy until you gain heaven and gain Christ-likeness. This is something that is to affect every part of our lives. Matthew 6.33 says, but seek first. Same word for seek. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And Jesus there is comparing seeking heaven and heavenly things to earthly needs. Not even desires, to earthly needs. And He says there's no comparison. Seek heaven first. Seek the heart of Christ first. And God will add those things unto you. He'll take care of those things. So the verse says, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Is. the word for above is a word that sometimes is used for heaven for heavenly things in that phrase where Christ is Paul is saying if, if Christ is the one giving you life if you're dead to the world don't you think your focus should be where the life giver is don't you think your focus should be what he wants What his desires are. Verse goes on in verse 1. Where Christ is, and then seated at the right hand of God. Seated at the right hand of God. And Paul here is slipping in some more theology, some more rationale. Seated at the right hand of God, reminded them of two things. Number one, that Jesus was risen. That he's the life giver. That he's not still rotting in the grave. Praise God. But the second thing, when you're seated at the right hand of God, that was an understanding of authority, that was an understanding of power and of lordships. And so Paul here is subtly reminding them seek the things of God where Christ is. By the way, he is Lord and authority over all, if that matters to you. So seek him. And we come out of that with the point that we mentioned. Evaluate your desires and ambitions. Are they Christ's desires? See, this verse says every aspiration and desire is to come under the lordship of Christ. His interests are to become our interests. His desires, our desires. His plan, our plan. Even if we don't understand it, even if we are frustrated by it, and even when we think life has given us a raw deal, His plan, our plan. His means, our means, the ends that He desires to glorify Himself, our desire is to glorify Him. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, we read, And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Let me read that again. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised, and you see the death and the resurrection, and then that should drive us, that should drive us to live for Christ in all that we do. So how do we apply this? I really don't think I've said anything that anyone here would disagree with. You'd all say, yes, our ambition should be for Christ. Our desire should be for Christ and what, what He wants. We get that. But, but I, I think our challenge is that we can have a head knowledge of that, but when it comes to what we actually put into practice, what we actually value and, and have as our ambition in life, often can get so distracted and muddled by everyday life that we lose sight heaven, that we lose sight of seeking eternal things and God's things. So living in Christ means a change of desires, ambitions, a change in what we strive for, what we seek after. If we're to be radically changed, it starts with our ambitions and our desires. If we don't desire what what, what Christ desires, you will never be changed and you will not be living in Christ. It sounds so simple, but it takes all of earthly life to, as God is sanctifying us to put into practice. So look back on your list of your desires and ambitions. Your deepest desires, the things you strive for, the things you aim for. Don't turn them in. Don't say anything. This is just you and God. How many of those things are, are directly focused on Christ's desires? How many of those things that you wrote down are directly what God asks us to do? Do we have things like, I I desire and quest for discipleship, which Christ commands. I desire and quest, and it's my ambition to share the gospel. That is why why God has left us here on this earth to be his representatives, to be his ambassadors. And so, as we, we seek to apply this, we need to look at ourselves honestly and say, This is time for a checkup. Have I left behind some of those things for the sake of the dead world around me? Where am I concentrating my energy? By focusing on what is eternal? So you ask ourselves questions like, how do I view money? How do I view money? That can become an aim. That can become an ambition. I'm going to make enough money. And maybe not even to be rich, but to provide well and to be comfortable. But is that an eternal way of looking at money? God would say, look at money with how can I use my resources for the kingdom? How can I use my resources to to reach people for Christ? How can I use my resources to be a light for Christ? Money isn't a way to fulfill our own desires. It's a way to do God's will. Many of you are are college students, high school students that are here are are beginning to look for a spouse. And, And that can become a very consuming quest. Got to find the right person. Got to find somebody. But but again, reorienting orienting ourselves to the life giver says, no, my quest isn't to find somebody. My quest is to serve Christ. And the amazing thing is, when that becomes your aim and desire, young men and women, then God will bring someone with the same desire and you will be able to serve Christ together. And we're worrying about the wrong things. And am I going to meet somebody instead of am I going to serve the eternal Christ and King? and trust that he will take care of the rest. How do we view possessions? Keeping possessions, holding on to possessions. A great test of that is when someone asks to borrow something. How tightly am I going to hold on to that? Am I going to use this for the kingdom? I'm going to keep what I've amassed. See, this issue of where our ambitions and our aims are is a dividing point in our lives. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And it's a watershed moment. Again, when we were in the Sierras, we were really close to the the Sierra Divide, where if if rain fell on one side, it would go down to Fresno and down to the bay, and if rain fell to the other side, even if it was just a foot apart, it would go down the Owens River and we'd probably drink it in L.A. And, And the water ends up completely different, even though it's just a little ways apart, because it's a watershed. It's a dividing line. And this, this issue of where our ambitions are is a watershed for us as believers. If we don't take this seriously, we will end up embracing the world's values, which are dead and worthless. See, Kevin. We we were able to spend a little bit of time on vacation this week with the family and My boys are really into something called Ninjago, and it's this Lego ninja thing. And um, some of you with young boys are like, yep. Um, And they want this ship. And it's an $80 ship. And we have said, that's great. That's, That's something. You have some spending money. You can save your spending money for it. And now for them, it's going to take a long time and birthday money and Christmas money. And they've decided they're going to come together on it, which was really cool to see, actually, that they're joining their money on it. But we're on vacation and, and we get to the place where we're staying and there's these these air hockey tables and the air hockey tables cost 75 cents. And they want to play. And we're like, oh, that's great. We've, you have some, some spending money. As a family, we'll do that later. But if you want to do that on your own, you can. And the boys looked at each other and said, no. No. We want the Ninjago ship. And so I'm willing to not play air hockey because we want the Ninjago ship. It's their aim. It's their focus. That's the kind of single-minded focus we need to have for the kingdom of God. That we're willing to forego things. That we're willing to sacrifice things. And ask the question, does this help the kingdom? There is no other question. Does this bring glory to God? Verse 1 there, Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, orient yourself to the life giver with your desires and your ambitions. Verses two and three. Second point is, evaluate your thought life. Do you often think about Christ and his sacrifice? Verse two: set your minds on things that are above. And that word it means intentionally think about. Force yourself to think about. Set your minds. You can choose what you think about. I don't know, it's one of the things, again, that counters the world's philosophy right now, where our thoughts just come and they control us. You can choose what you think about. If I said don't think of blue elephants, all of you are thinking of blue elephants right now. I'm helping you choose what you're thinking about. And we can do the same thing spiritually. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Taking every thought captive is controlling it. So Paul here says, set your minds, intentionally think and dwell on things that are above. Same as in verse 1, heavenly things, Christ-like things. Not on things that are on the earth. And so Paul here challenges again very practically, what do you spend your time thinking about? What do you dwell on? What do you focus on? Isn't it true sometimes how, how our thoughts can begin to consume us? Especially if, if it's something that's happened and we dwell on it and, and it can, as we think about it, the weird thing is it's like a virus and it grows. And, and the, the details grow and the facts grow and, and it becomes so overwhelming that it blinds us to everything else. And God says, no, no, set your minds on things that are above. What things are above? What's He talking about? Any ideas? What? God's desires. So as we think, what does God desire? What else? What is holy? What is good? Philippians 4.8 God's, God's character Would it change your day if you're sitting in traffic and the whole time instead of thinking of that guy that came two inches from you you're thinking, you know what, God is loving God is just, He is omnipotent It just changes what we're thinking about It changes where our focus is One of the commentators, Lightfoot, said Not only do we need to seek heaven we need to think heaven I like that. We need to think heaven. But Paul goes on in verse three to help us know what to think about. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And he draws us back to the work of Christ. You died because Christ died on the cross for your sins and took your place. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. A lot of questions about what that means. Your life is hidden with Christ. It has two different aspects to it. The first is that He has given us new life, but we don't fully know it until we're in eternity with Him, right? We don't fully experience eternal life, but we already have it. And in the kingdom, we call this the already and the not yet. We already have eternal life, but we haven't yet experienced it in glory, face to face, walking with our Lord and Savior, in perfect communion. But more than that, the, the larger sense of what it means that our life is hidden in Christ is the idea that, that we are put into a safe place from the enemy. We are, are put in a safe place from the enemy. Psalm 27, 5 gives a great illustration of this. For he will hide me in the shelter, in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. There's all kinds of other psalms we can read that we don't have time to this morning. But throughout the Old Testament, when someone referred to hiding you, it's being hidden in His refuge. Hidden in His protection. And so part of what Paul is saying here is you're dead to the world. The life giver has given you new life. And guess what? That protects you. No one can take eternal life away from you when you believe in Jesus Christ. It is secure. Now keep in mind what this means for them when they're afraid that if they cross the river the wrong way, an evil spirit will smack them. This is is incredibly comforting. This is a promise. Paul says your life is hidden with Christ. Those evil spirits have no power over you. You're dead to them. For us, it's a reminder that God is always there. And He keeps us safe. Now, that does not mean that nothing bad ever happens in this fallen world. What it means is we are eternally safe. We are secure, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And so Paul says, think about those things. How much time do we spend thinking on the work of Christ? Or is it just Sunday morning when some guy gets up and talks about it? What if we left ourselves reminders all over the house throughout the week that said, Christ rose and gave me life. Christ protects me. Christ desires to be my everything. His ways are higher than my ways. And we begin to think about the things that God would have us think about. To think about the death of our old man. To think about his forgiveness. To think about hope. To take our situations and to think about how Christ wants to redeem that situation instead of how awful that situation is. To think about temptations and as we're being tempted, to think about Christ has died on the cross for this temptation. He has paid the price. His blood was spilt. Do I really want to go down this path? And it's taking captive our thoughts. Leave no room for the influence of worldly thinking. So Paul, in verse one says, "Evaluate your aims, your ambitions, your goals, your desires." In verses two and three, he says, "Evaluate your thought life. How are you doing in your thought life? Are you taking it captive? And finally, verse four, he says, "Evaluate what you look forward to. Evaluate what you look forward to. Are you eagerly anticipating eternity with Christ? What do we hope for? Are we living for the weekend? Are we living for the next vacation because that's how I'm going to survive? Those things are fleeting. They go away. Or are we living because we know with assurance that I will stand face to face with my Lord and Savior for all of eternity? And this is just temporary. The eternal is taken care of. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, Paul keeps reminding them of that. He's the life giver. When Christ, who is your life, He's the the reason you live, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. It's a promise. It's a promise and a hope. And so, Lord, I pray that You would, by Your Holy Spirit and the power of Your Holy Spirit, reorient our aims and our ambitions and our desires. Take captive our thinking and help us think on Your work and Your cross and your character. And Lord, help us to eagerly anticipate being with you in eternity. You're a holy God. We praise you. Thank you for the life that you give. In Jesus' name, amen.